This is Choni's Circle. I'm Tamar Lubicki. I'm Rabbi Paula Rose. And on Choni's Circle, we are going to explore Jewish texts from the Torah through the Talmud and lots of traditional commentaries to grapple with climate change to help us process our emotions about climate change and about this particular moment um, and to help us try to make sense of the world that we find ourselves in. Usually for Choni Circle, we bring texts that are from the Tanakh, from the Hebrew Bible, or commentaries on it. Occasionally, we bring a text from the Mishnah or from the Talmud. Today, we're really venturing out into the great beyond of rabbinic literature. We're going to be looking at a text from the Mishnah Torah, which is written by Maimonides, the Rambam. And it's a halachic work, a book of Jewish law. And he's actually in this text writing about Jewish law that is no longer operative in his time. So he's living some thousand years plus after the destruction of the Second Temple. But despite that, the Mishnah Torah contains lots of laws about what should happen in the temple. And this is one of them. And it's about something called Korban Ha'etzim, the sacrifice of wood, that is mentioned in the Mishnah. But it's not totally clear from the Mishnah itself exactly what that is, right? The Torah mentions a lot of different sacrifices that would be brought on different occasions. Sacrifices, offerings of thanksgiving, and the daily sacrifices, and offerings in acknowledgement of wrongdoing and things like that. But it doesn't mention any kind of sacrifice or offering of wood in particular, so that seems a little bit strange. The Talmud and later sources expand on it a little bit more, but Rambam here gives a pretty succinct definition and explanation of what Korban Ha'etzim was or would have been like in this text. He writes, What was the sacrifice of wood? Certain families had a fixed time on which they would go out to the forests and bring wood for the arrangement on the altar. That is, the wood that would be for the fire, right, for the other sacrifices to be burned. On the day designated for this family to bring their sacrifices, they would bring voluntary burnt offerings. This was called the sacrifice of the wood. It was like a festival for these families, and they were forbidden to have eulogies delivered, fast, and perform work on that day. This was a custom. Even a private individual who gave wood or logs for the arrangement of the wood on the altar is forbidden to have eulogies delivered fast and perform work on that day. This was a custom. What he's referring to when he says that this is a custom is saying that like those restrictions right, have the weight of custom and not the weight of halakha, of law itself. But I think it's really interesting the way that bringing the wood for the altar, right, which is really just... I shouldn't say just, right? But it's it doesn't have any ritual power in and of itself. It's not an offering with its own ritual symbolism. It's literally bringing the fuel that is going to be used to sustain the temple and sustain all of the sacrifices of a given day. And I think it's really striking the way that he imagines the act of providing that wood to be like a really festive significant thing that has like actual ritual weight 
for the people who are doing it. Yeah, I love this. And to me, one of the things that it made me think of is that volunteering for the community to me is like an inherently joyful act. And I believe it is for other people too, but I think people don't always remember that. Mm -hmm. And they think maybe it's just like another thing to add to their schedule and it's kind of a burden. And I think really pointing out how joyful it is by adding celebration and taking away fasting and eulogies and like just reminding people that it's joyful is a very interesting thing. Could we do something in our modern times to like emphasize the joy of volunteering? Yeah, I love that. And I especially love that this is not a communal festival. It's a festival like for the person who's doing it, right? Like it's their own personal holiday. And I kind of love that because I think we appropriately and often you know, for really good reason, we tend to be like really communally oriented in Judaism that like when we have holidays and celebrations, right, it's like, it's everyone together, right? It's not like your own personal holiday or occasion. And I actually kind of love that, like, the recognition of like, no, like you're doing something that's like really important and really needed. And lots of different people are taking turns doing that work. But like on the day that you're doing that work, like that has real ritual weight and real joy Maybe not for the whole community, right? It's not sustainable, right? Like the wood needs to be brought every day, right? So it's not sustainable for the whole community to be having a joyous occasion every time the wood is brought. But when you're the one who brings it, that that is actually a real festival for you. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I don't know what that would look like, but I love the right. idea of imagining it. Well, in a way, it's sort of similar to B'nai Mitzvah, right? Yeah. Like, you are about to become a contributing member of society and be doing things for the community or abstaining from doing things <laughs> for the community. And this is a celebration of that, the B'nai Mitzvah celebrations. Yeah, I love that. But what would have these uh, Sacrifice of the Wood celebrations look like? I think it's fun also to just imagine what it would be like. Yeah. One of the things that I also really love about this is the way that it's really visceral for the people who are doing it. And like, you know, did it ever really happen this way? Like, I don't know. But I love the image of you go out to the forest and like you cut down some wood and then you schlep it to the temple. You know, it's not like an assembly line kind of thing, which like is obviously much more efficient, but it's actually about like doing something like yourself with your own hands and bringing something of yourself and in that way, it really is a sacrifice, even as it's kind of just providing the fuel for the other sacrifices. It's also actually something that you're like genuinely bringing of yourself, which I kind of love. I also love the respect that is given to fuel here. I sometimes wonder like how much of our current climate crisis is connected to the way, not just that we rely on fuel, which we obviously do, but like it's such a basic need that is like so taken for granted that like obviously we need it so obviously we're gonna use it and I just kind of love the way that it's like lifted up here as like yes like this is a real need and so we're gonna like notice and take seriously like the way that we're using it and where it's coming from and who is bringing it and like really pay attention to that whole chain as opposed to just being like, we need this fuel, so we're not going to think too hard about like where it's coming from and how it's getting to me and like what is happening to our planet in the process. Right. 
And I think that probably elevates it for everyone involved. The Kohanim also, like if they just contracted out wood cutting and gathering and then there's some wood appears and they're like, okay, this is our wood. But if a family party dances in with their wood in the morning, it's special. You really start to pay attention to that more. Yeah, and I think also, like, there's something about the way that everybody takes turns with this, right? So the imagining is that there are different families who are assigned to different days to bring the wood. And that also, right, means that more people have to have that awareness, right? Like, if there's one family whose job is to always bring the fuel, right, then nobody else has to think about where it comes from or how it gets there. But when that responsibility is diffuse, then, like, everybody has to appreciate where it's coming from and what it actually takes to like pull off offering sacrifices yeah in the temple because everybody has a little bit of a hand in it yeah and that brings to mind another thing that we do at Beshalom, which is shabbos chefs this idea that we try not always successfully for every kiddish that's not sponsored or a special event for a congregant or a group of congregants to lead the group to cook the meal and I do think that does foster appreciation in the congregation in general for our Kiddush more than it would when they know the people who made the food and it's changing and they can like express gratitude to those individuals each time. No, I think that's right. And I think, right, it means that even people in our community who don't do it regularly, right, a lot of people in our community have been in the kitchen helping as a Shabbos chef at some point. And I think that means that, like, more people in our community actually have an appreciation of, like, what does it take to pull off feeding a few hundred people every single week? And I think that that makes people relate to the experience of Shabbat lunch differently, having an appreciation of what it takes to pull it off, as opposed to, like, if we just catered bagels every week. Also, that would be sad. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's fun to have that variety. And I agree. If you know what goes into something, not only do you have more appreciation, but you might also have more of an acceptance for a variety, that Mm -hmm. variability, like things go wrong. And if you've been part of the process, you're like, oh, things sometimes go wrong. Like, I understand (laughs) instead of just complaining about it. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Yeah. And even beyond that humility of like realizing that sometimes things go wrong and like I've made mistakes and I've watched things go wrong. And so like I understand what's happening now. I think it also like fosters a sense of like, well, unless you're volunteering to be a Shabbos chef, like you don't get to complain about it. <laughs> right? Like I think there is sort of a sense of like, oh, like this is actually a communal responsibility. And so like if I don't like the way something is going, then like either I need to just accept it the way it is, or I need to step up and volunteer to bring my vision to reality. But like, I don't get to just like passively experience whatever is happening and be unhappy with it. I mean, I guess you can. I think people do actually genuinely feel like, oh, well, I don't really, I don't really have a right to to be cranky about this um, or to complain about it if I'm not also contributing. Yeah, but I I think, you know, having been a Shabbos chef, I think there's a joy to being able to feed a lot of people and having that gratitude expressed. Yeah. And how can we incorporate that participation, like the joy of participation and volunteerism within the fight to preserve our climate at a livable temperature? So that's just something to think about. I don't know exactly what it would mean, but... Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think a lot of the question is about, like, how do you scale this up, 
right? Like it's easy in sort of a smaller community to be like, okay, like these are my people and I know them. And like this week, so-and-so is cooking lunch. We're going to be happy and proud and grateful and they're going to feel good about it. (laughs) We're going to feel good about it. And like, how do we then like globalize that, right? Like what does it mean when we're talking about something that is beyond the scale of just an immediate community where people know each other? Yeah, and I think that's something that we should continue to think about. I just read a graphic novel about World Central Kitchen, which is this nonprofit organization that goes to different disaster areas. And as soon as they can, they set up kitchens and start just cranking out meals, feeding first responders, feeding community members who are affected, just like feeding anyone they can find in the area. And it was actually very inspiring and one of the things he said is that when he that that's the like head um jose andres hopefully i got that name right he said that when they set up a kitchen people from the community just will wander in and start volunteering wow yeah and how meaningful would that be like you're affected by this disaster and then you immediately like come and start helping other people And I think we've talked on the podcast before, like there's something about a crisis and there's something about what we're experiencing, which is a very slow moving crisis. And it's can sometimes be easy to act in an immediate crisis and much harder to act in a slow moving one. Just something to think about. Yeah. 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 Well, and I think this is a helpful model of what it is to act and to give in a moment of like not crisis right right? and it's intentionally sustainable right it's not like one person's job to always do this and then like they get sick or they get tired or they get burnt out and then it just doesn't happen right it's like diffuse it's spread among a lot of people as sort of a way to just like ensure that this necessary work that has to happen all the time year in and year out can continue to happen in a way that is sustainable even when it's not a response to a particular crisis that needs to happen right away right and by spreading it out you're kind of getting rid of the threat of burnout. You're not getting burnt out by cutting wood once every three years. I don't know how (laughs) often this task would come. I mean, maybe even less than that. Yeah. Again, it's not totally clear. Like, I don't know how much, you know, to trust the Talmud. as like the historical record here, right? When it's already a few hundred years after this would have ceased. But it seems like it's once a year, right? That you have Mm. like a particular date that is your family's date. But it also seems like it's shared by many people, but it's not like the entire Israelite people. It's not, it's not totally clear. Right. Interesting. Um, right. Because yeah. Rambam also even mentions, right, like there are clearly like some families who have particular assigned dates that we have actually recorded even in the Mishnah. Oh, wow. But then he also has this indication, but like also like a private individual could bring the wood and like, even though they don't have the same kind of assigned date, it would still be a festival for them. So there seems to be a little bit of ambiguity about yeah. exactly who is bringing and when. Ah, interesting. Yeah, and one other thing that I thought of when, actually you presented this at Shoal, um, so I was already thinking about this, is this idea of sustainable forestry. Mm-hmm. So if the temple is going to last indefinitely and they keep needing wood for the sacrifices, they have to find like a mode of sustainable forestry where the forest just keeps producing throughout the years. And I actually, for this podcast, I looked on the Wikipedia pages. There are two different modes that I 
was sort of familiar with, but I refamiliarized myself. One is called pollarding, where you prune wood off a tree. And mm. so you can go throughout a forest. And over the course of years, part of the forest will have just been pruned and part of the forest will have been pruned, you know, 10 years ago. And then that's the part you go to next. So it actually is a system that is self-maintaining. If you don't take any more than the cycle that you've set up, it just keeps on giving the wood. A similar one is called coppicing, where you cut the tree down to its stump and then it regrows shoots because the roots are still alive. So mm -hmm. the tree doesn't actually die. So when I was imagining how this plays out is that perhaps they had a sustainable way of harvesting wood from the surrounding forests. I wonder also if, like, maybe that's part of having different families come, right? Are they coming from different places? Are they bringing wood from different places? You know, like, is there one forest, like, outside of Jerusalem that everybody's using? Or actually are people bringing from the different places they might have been living? And does that also help spread that resource use so that the forests can recover? And maybe being part of this ritual could also be some sort of, like, public education, right? Yeah. This is how we do sustainable forestry. Like, you're part of this celebration. Let's teach you. And then once you learn how the temple does their thing, you can continue on with your own personal wood harvesting mm -hmm. in that way. I'm Rabbi Paula Rose, the Associate Rabbi of Congregation Beth Shalom in Seattle. This podcast is a project of Congregation Beth Shalom and Ahavat Ve'avodat Adama, our community's environmental group. Choni's Circle was recorded in Seattle, Washington at Full Track Productions. It was produced by Tamara Labicki and Dave Dintenfass. With original music by Ella Labicki Feldman. Thanks for listening and learning with us.